continue the series of uh, Man, the Image of God. And uh, we're looking at specifically at the, the conscience of man in this series of teachings. We've had a look at the fact that there is an outward man and there is an inward man. God has created both. 2 Corinthians 4.16 says, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. And uh, we saw that the inward man is the real person, uh, for we are a spirit being, we have a soul, um, we live inside this outward man, which is our physical bodies. And... Uh, the inward man is made up of four primary parts we've had a look at so far, and that is the spirit, the soul, the will of man, and then the conscience, which is what we're dealing with in this series of teachings. And we said it's very important for us to understand the various parts of man so that we can learn um, and understand Scripture more clearly. Um, and we gave the example of Nicodemus when he came to the Lord and he um, the Lord spoke to him and said to him, unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And his understanding was limited in that he didn't understand that man uh, was a spirit being. And so his thinking went straight into the natural and he couldn't understand what it meant to be born again. We subsequently obviously do understand the concept of being born again because we understand that we're spirit beings. And that is what our Lord was referring to when he spoke about one being born again. It is the spirit of man being born again. But uh, there are other parts of the inward man as well, and those parts um, also need to be understood in relation to Scripture so that we can better interpret Scripture and uh, be able to uh, then obviously walk in the truth thereof. And so I've already gone through the fact that we've, we've mentioned that uh, there is a spirit of man, there's a soul of man. The Bible teaches us in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, <clears throat> Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. And so there are two different parts of man. The inner man right there um, talks about the body, but talks about the spirit and the soul. And the spirit and the soul, we said, are, are two separate parts of man. And um, they are inseparable except by the Word of God. And the book of Hebrews teaches us that the uh, Word of God is sharp and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, able to divide even asunder the spirit and the soul. So it's really the Word of God that can separate the two. And because the two can, in fact, be separated, they are two separate parts of man. And we tried to do the analogy about <clears throat> these various parts of the inward man in relation to the analogy of the various parts of the body of man. We said that the heart in the, our physical bodies has one particular function and our brains have another function. So both make up part of the, the body, but nevertheless both have their own separate function. And so it is with regards to the spirit of man and the soul of man. They together make up the inward man, but nevertheless they are separate and have separate functions. And we've gone through the will of man, we've done a whole teaching on that already, and that is another function completely. The will of man is separate from all, and we said that the will of man reigns supreme in the makeup of man, because it is always as an act of our will that we decide what we're going to be doing, whether we're going to walk in the flesh or walk in the spirit. And then we've had a look at the fact that uh, the conscience of man is a definite part of man. Um, and we are, in this series, we're wanting to understand more about the conscience. And the scripture, we, uh, one of the scriptures we looked at it was in Acts 24, verse 16. Paul writing, he says, This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. And so the Apostle Paul, and we'll have a look at uh, further scripture, Peter as well, um, they played, placed great emphasis on their conscience and um, living with a good conscience. And we saw also that uh, under the Old Covenant, the conscience was never mentioned. It was not ever, ever taught. Um, the first time we saw the conscience mentioned in the Bible it is in John's Gospel. And uh, we had a look at that scripture. And so... We also saw that there is progressive revelation that, that takes place 
um, in the kingdom of God. And the saints today have far more revelation than the saints under the old covenant had. And in fact, the saints living today have even more revelation than the saints that were living under Paul's ministry and under Peter's ministry. You say, well, that sounds kind of strange, but that's actually the truth because the book of Revelation was only written to the church after Paul and Peter had left the planet to go to be with the Lord. And so Paul and Peter could never teach those truths uh, out of God's Word because those truths had not yet been revealed to the body of Christ. It was only through John's ministry at the end of his ministry that the book of Revelation was brought uh, to light in the church. And so we actually have even greater revelation than um, the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter had in their day. Nevertheless, all revelation as far as Scripture is concerned has now been completed. And the book of Revelation was the last of the books given to the church before our Lord Jesus Christ returns. <clears throat> and so we walk in the, the progressive light of the revelation of the Word of God. But uh, again, the point is that Old Testament saints were not informed about their conscience. The New Testament saints are. And so we need to understand how the conscience, in fact, does function. Um, and so we can walk in the, in the fullness that we're meant to walk in. Um, and then we saw that we wanted to understand what the, the, the purpose of the conscience was. Well, it is. What is why has God designed this, this part of man called a conscience? What is its purpose? We know that the heart and the body is designed to pump the blood around the, 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 in the bloodstream. We know that our brain is designed to think. Um, so what is the conscience designed for? What is its purpose? Why, why has God given to us this part of man called a conscience? And so we went back into the creation of man. We went back all the way to the book of Genesis. And we wanted to see, you know, well, how, when God created a man in his image, how did he create him? Did he have a conscience uh, from the start? And we saw, in fact, he, the conscience was there, but the conscience was there in latent form. Um, for the conscience had not yet come to fruition when Adam and Eve first dwelt in the Garden of Eden. And uh, the scripture we, we looked at, we, we saw how God created man. He breathed into man the breath of life. God first formed Adam's body from the dust of the ground. But that body was still lifeless. And so what God then did was he breathed into Adam, uh, into his physical body, the breath of life, which was the Spirit of God. And once the Spirit of God entered into that body, the Bible says that man became a living being. And so his soul also was imparted to him at that time. And his will was also imparted to him at that time, including the conscience. But the conscience was not, not operational at that time. And so <clears throat> Adam became a living being because his spirit, the Bible teaches us that the body without the spirit is dead. And so the, the body, Adam's body needed a spirit to be inside of it in order for it to come to life. And so Adam's spirit entered into that body and the body came to life and the blood started flowing for the very first time. But at the same time, this physical organ called the brain, the soul took up residence in the brain and Adam began to think and to reason for the very first time and he could converse with God and uh, be an intelligent being. Now, his will was also in place right at the outset because right at the outset, God gave him the command. You can eat of every tree in the garden, but you're not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So Adam had his free will given to him right up front. For it was as an act of Adam's free will that he chose to obey God at that time. And uh, he chose not to partake of the fruit of the tree of good and evil. Um, but the conscience is not revealed at that time. In, in all that period of time, for however long that was, the Bible remained silent on that issue as to how long Adam and Eve actually walked free from sin in the Garden of Eden. But during that time, they had no knowledge of good and evil. They only knew God's perfect surroundings. So, you know, it would have been good because the Bible teaches us that everything that God created um, was good, was very good, the Bible says. And so they were only surrounded by good. There was no evil present in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve 
first walk in the garden. And so the knowledge of, the, of good and evil was not in their consciences. They, didn't, they were not conscious of evil at all. And then obviously the, the, the serpent came into the garden, he deceived Eve, um, and uh, he said, you, you know, did God really say that you not to eat of every uh, tree of, uh, in the garden? And she, she replies, no, God said we can eat of every tree. We're just not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because if we eat of it, or even if we touch it, uh, in that day we will surely die. And then obviously Satan lies to her and says, no, 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 you're not going to die in that day. God knows that if you eat of that tree, you'll become like God, having knowledge of good and evil. Now she gets deceived, the Bible teaches us in the New Testament. Again, you see, you know, we're looking at revelation given to the saints under the New Covenant that the Old Testament saints didn't, didn't know. But we know under the New Covenant, the Bible teaches us very plainly, Eve was deceived, Adam wasn't. And so she's deceived, and the deception in her case is that she honestly believes Satan, when he speaks to her and tells her, you're not going to die, she believes that. She believes that she will not die. Um, she comes to Adam and she says, you know, this is what uh, the serpent has told me. Adam then makes a conscious decision. Uh, he knows they're going to die. The Bible teaches us Adam was not deceived. So he knew he would die spiritually. He understood it was spiritual death. He understood it wasn't uh, physical death that he would incur. Um, but he was quite prepared to take that step because he wanted to now partake of this um, knowledge of good and evil and become like God. Um, and he, he, he weighed up the two and he made a, um, a rational decision, irrational in our thinking, but in his thinking at that time, that was the trade-off he was prepared to make. Now, in all of that, and then they obviously they go to the, uh, the tree and they partake of the fruit. Right up until that time that they partake of the fruit, there is nothing that is hindering them from partaking of that fruit. There's nothing that is blocking them. There's nothing that's saying, whoa, what you're about to do is not a good idea. Don't do it. Um, he's completely deceived. She thinks that this is a good thing that she's about to partake of. Um, Adam weighs up and he says, well, I'm prepared to die spiritually so that I can become like God, have, having knowledge of good and evil. So he makes a decision based on his, his free will. Um, but in nothing, in, in, at no time is there any hindrance to the act that they're about to partake of. Uh, and so they do partake of. And we saw that the moment that that happened, something happened. There were two things that occurred when they partook of that fruit. Well, in fact, yeah, okay, when they partook of the fruit, because the act of partaking of the fruit is what killed their spirits. For our Lord said, in that day that you eat of that fruit, in that day you will surely die. And they both then died spiritually. And that happened instantly. There was no grace in the Garden of Eden. Um, as we're under, under the new covenant, we're under grace. Grace and truth were revealed through Jesus Christ our Lord. Um, and so in the Garden of Eden, there was no grace. There was only one command that they had to obey, and that command was, do not partake of the fruit of the tree of uh, knowledge of good and evil. And that's the command that they, that's the only command they could transgress. There was no other command that God had given them uh, that they could transgress. This was the only one. And when they transgressed that command, they committed sin against God, because sin is disobedience to God. Simple as that. That's, that's the, the simplest form of uh, the explanation of what sin is. Sin is disobeying God. So in the act of partaking of the fruit, they had now disobeyed God. And when they did that, they committed sin. And the Bible teaches us in the book of Romans, death entered through sin. Death can only come in through sin. It needs sin in order for it to materialize. Um, they commit sin and death enters into them straight away. And that death is spiritual death. Their spirits died instantly. There was no grace period. There was no time where God said, okay, well, you, miss, you messed up this one time. I'll forgive you this one time, but now, you know, don't do it again. There was no grace at all. They committed the sin. They died spiritually straight away. But there was something else that happened at the same time. And that was in Genesis 3, 7. Scripture says, 
Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And so, even though their spirits died, and we saw, um, so we wanted to know, what, because the scripture says, as a result of them partaking of the fruit, the eyes were opened. So there are two things that happened. Their spirits died and their eyes were opened. So we wanted to know what eyes were opened because we saw it wasn't their physical eyes because they, were, you know, they could physically see at all times. That wasn't the issue. And we also saw that it wasn't their spiritual eyes. And we looked at the fact that they, we do have spiritual eyes, all of us. Um, God does allow us to see into the realm of the spirit from time to time as he wills. Not all of us, but you know, some people. And we looked at the, the example in Eli with Elisha and his servant. Um, Elisha prayed, Lord, open his eyes, and God did. God opened his eyes, and the young man could then see into the realm of the Spirit for the very first time, and he saw angels of fire and chariots of fire all around the city. That was there all the time. He just couldn't see them because that was in the realm of the Spirit. But God opened his eyes, spiritualized that he could see into the realm of the Spirit, and for that moment he could see that. Um, and so mankind does have spiritual eyes. But in Adam and Eve's case, it wasn't their spiritual eyes that were open because the Bible teaches us that when we are in the kingdom of, of Satan, we're in the kingdom of darkness. In fact, our eyes are blind and we cannot see. And so, in fact, they died spiritually. They became darkness. They entered into darkness. They couldn't see with their spirits anymore. Prior to that, they could. They could see uh, spiritual aspects, and I'm not going to get into that today. But anyway, so the, it wasn't their spiritual eyes that were open. We also saw in Scripture that the Bible talks about the eyes of our understanding, which is talking about our, our minds, uh, the eyes of our understanding being enlightened. The uh, book of uh, Ephesians talks about the eyes of our understanding. But it also talks about the fact that the God of this age, who is Satan, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, um, blinds the minds of the unbelievers. And so there wasn't the eyes of the understanding that were open because the moment that they committed sin, they, they were translated out of the kingdom of light into the kingdom of darkness straight away. And they now were subject to their new ruler who was Satan because they now bow bowed the knee to Satan. And he became the god of this world straight away. And, and the moment he did that, he blinded the minds, their minds, so that they couldn't no longer see um, truths in God's word. And that's why the Bible says to us that the old covenant is hidden by a veil and the veil is only taken away in Christ. And so all unbelievers who read the Bible, it's a closed book to them because the God of this age has blinded their minds. And so it was not the eyes of the understanding that were open, but they knew good and evil for the very first time. And so it was the eyes of their conscience that was opened for the very first time and they now knew good and evil and they had actually become like God. God acknowledged that, that um, he that had become like God which is why he had to take them out of the Garden of Eden. Look at Genesis chapter 3 verse 22. The Lord speaking then, the scripture says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also the uh, tree of life and eat and live forever. And then God removed Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. But they had become like God in having knowledge of good and evil. And so when the eyes of the conscience was opened, for the very first time, they could see, they saw that they were naked. Now, they've been naked all the time. Uh, they didn't change once they uh, partook of the fruit. They just now knew, because the conscience of man is given to man to uh, let him know to choose good and shun evil. Um, and so what they recognize now for the very first time is that because they were now spiritually dead, it was evil for them to walk around naked in the presence of each other and also in the presence of God. And that's why they were afraid and that's why they tried to cover themselves. Because now for the very first time, their conscience convicted them of doing wrong, of, you know, this is wrong. You can't walk around naked in your current spiritual state before God. That's a no-no, not allowed. 
And so now they have to try and compensate and they went and tried to put uh, fig leaves together and God gave them a, a tunic of, of skin to cover themselves. But we saw basically that that is when the conscience of man was awakened for the very first time. Uh, in the Garden of Eden, when they partook of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, um, that fruit was good. For we saw that everything that God created was good, including that tree, and including the fruit of the tree. Um, and the result was is that they, the eyes of their conscience, was opened for the very first time. They now knew good and evil. They knew they had done wrong, and from there on, their conscience would convict them and guide them because the conscience of man is given to man by God to guide man to choose good and reject evil. That's, that's its function. That's the, the only thing that the conscience does. Um, and that's why it's so important for us to follow our conscience and to always be obedient to it. Because it is a very safe guide. It will never, the conscience of man will never lead a man into doing evil. The conscience of man will always lead man into doing good and shunning evil. That is what its function is. Let's have a look at a scripture now about the fact that the, the conscience is designed by God to get us to always choose good and shun evil. And the scripture we'll look at is in Romans chapter 2 verse 15. The scripture says, Who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. And so Paul in this passage of Scripture is talking about the fact that uh, um, Gentile believers have the, the, the law of God written in their hearts. And that is what the New Covenant is all about. The book of Hebrews teaches us. God says, there's coming a day I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, I will write my laws upon their minds and upon their hearts. I'll put my laws into their minds and into their hearts. And so when we're born again, what God does is He puts His laws into our hearts and into our minds. He writes them there. And so we, and Paul says, we then do what we do naturally is we are obedient to the laws of God because that's part of who we are. Peter said, we're born again of the incorruptible seed of the Word of God. And so it's God's Word, God's law that we're born of. And so we, as our, we walk our Christian walk, that's what we do, we, because that's our nature. Our nature has now become like, <coughs> excuse me, like the nature of God. And so that is what the, the, uh, the born-again spirit is like. The born-again spirit is born of God, and uh, John says it cannot sin. Um, Peter says it's an incorruptible, uh, born again of incorruptible seed. It cannot be corrupted. And so the spirit of man, born again man, will always do that which is pleasing to God. That's how they're wired. Um, the mind of man, as, as we renew our minds and we allow God to write his laws on our minds, so we will renew our thinking in line with God's word and, and behave in that manner. But there is another part of man that also come, is brought to bear, and that's we've just seen that now in Romans 2.15, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, talking about the new covenant, God writes his laws in our hearts, their conscience also. So the conscience and the heart of man are two separate parts of man. Um, it's the spirit of man is the heart of man, and the conscience is a separate part. And he says, the conscience also bearing witness. Now, what does the conscience bear witness to? And between themselves, between the spirit of man, born-again man, and the conscience of the born-again man, between those two, their thoughts will either accuse them or excuse them of what they're about to do. So what does that mean? It means that as, as born-again believers, whatever action we're going to take, if it's in line with the Word of God, if it's choosing to do good, our spirits are going to go with it. Our spirits are always going to say, yes, this is fine. You can go ahead and do it. But our conscience is also going to be a witness. Our conscience will agree with our spirit and agree with that course of action we're wanting to take. If, on the other hand, we are choosing to now go walk in the flesh for argument's sake and we're wanting to do things that are carnal, 
Our spirit is not going to agree with it. Our spirit will accuse us and say, this is not on you, you shouldn't be doing this. But at the same time, our conscience will also bear witness with our spirit and say, yes, that's not on you, you can't do that. And so that is where the conscience plays a role in the life of the believer. It will always be in agreement with our spirit. It'll always be in opposition to our flesh. Just like our, our spirit is always in opposition to our flesh, so the conscience will always bear witness with our spirit and always uh, disagree with our flesh. In that, if any uh, believer wants to walk in the flesh, the conscience would not agree to that, and the conscience would then convict the believer that what you're about to do uh, is wrong and you shouldn't do it. And so that is really where the. It's like an umpire, we said, that the, the, the umpire says, you know, if you do that, I'm going to blow the whistle because you're out. Um, if you do that, that's fine. You can carry on playing in the game. And so really that's what, what the conscience is given to mankind for. But it's very important, I'm talking about believers again, it's very important for us as believers to keep a good conscience because um, when we, and we're going to get into the more teaching on the depth of, of how we can affect our conscience and, and how we can strengthen it, but when we disobey our conscience, um, and we do not, the Bible talks about having a good conscience, uh, and we don't have a good conscience anymore. It affects our walk as believers in our walk in love. The scripture is in 1 Timothy 1 verse 5. The scripture says, Now the purpose of the commandment, talking about the word of God, is love. From a pure heart, which is our born-again spirit, our, our spirit is, a born, is pure, from a good conscience and from sincere faith. And so there again, he's talking about the, the, the heart of man and he's talking about the conscience as being separate parts of man. But it's important for us, if we're going to walk in love, that we must have a good conscience. You cannot be walking in love towards anyone and not be walking in a good conscience toward those people at the same time. It, 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 the two are going to be completely at opposite ends. And so it's important for us that we, uh, if we're going to walk in love, that we're going to be obedient to our conscience uh, and, and listen to what our conscience says. And then there's another there's a few scriptures we can look at which just reinforces the fact that the conscience of man is given to him by God to help him to, to see what, to, what, what is right and what is wrong. This you can do, that you can't. And uh, the other scripture we look at is Romans chapter 9 verse 1. Uh, Paul speaking again, he says, I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience also bearing witness, bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. And so our conscience will always convict us when we lie. Um, and so when we choose to tell the truth, our conscience will bear witness with us. In other words, our conscience will agree with us. Uh, that's what bearing witness means. And so we won't have the conflict within us um, when we're telling the truth. But if, if, if believers tell a lie, their conscience will convict them. That's what it does. And so it's very important for us as believers to listen to our conscience and be obedient to it. Here's another scripture we can look at just to show us the role that the conscience of man plays in the makeup of man. And the scripture is in Romans chapter 13, beginning at verse 5. Scripture says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror for good, to good works, but to, uh, to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Now verse 5. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. And so here he's saying, the Bible teaches it very plainly that all governments are put in place by God and we are to be submissive to governments. Now obviously a government that is promoting um, wrong laws 
you would then obviously not obey those laws because those laws were, are against the word of God. Uh, an example would be if the government says you need to go kill off all the Jews, okay, as they did in the Holocaust. Well, then you don't obey that law because that's, not, that's a law not given by God. But by and large, if the government says don't park there, you can park there, that's the law you obey because God has placed them in authority and that's their, their, their ordinance of God. And so he, uh, Paul advised in the church, he says, you guys need to be obedient to government because they, they do not carry the sword in vain. Um, and they are, you're talking about the sword, he's talking about you know, punishment that um, the law can bring, be brought to bear upon individuals who do not abide by the laws of the country. And so he says, you don't want to just obey it because of wrath, because you will incur the wrath of the government if you don't obey, but you also want to obey because of your conscience. So you do not want to offend your conscience because your conscience will always convict you if you're going to disobey the law. If you're going to drive through a red robot, your conscience actually will convict you that was wrong. You shouldn't have done that. Um, but if you're going to stop at the red robot, your conscience is going to not have a problem with you because you're now obeying the laws of the land. You're obeying the government that God has put in place. And so there again, just as our conscience will convict us of lying or just bear witness with us when we tell the truth, so our conscience will convict us if we're going to disobey the laws of the land or will agree with us when we obey the laws of the land. And so again, that's really what the conscience is given to us for, is to guide us to choose good and reject evil. Um, now that's the conscience in the believer, and we said that, uh, we saw in Romans, that the conscience of the believer and the spirit of the believer will always be in unison. They will never be at odds with each other. They will always agree with each other. And so together, they will convict a, a Christian of when they're going to do wrong, or agree with the Christian if the Christian is going to do right. That's how that our functions. However, in among, uh, with unbelievers, they too have a conscience. Their conscience is no different to the conscience of the believer. We don't get a new conscience when we're born again. We get new spirits. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. It's our spirits that are born again. Our conscience remains exactly the same because the role of the conscience doesn't change. From the time of, before we're born again and after we're born again, the, the role of the conscience remains exactly the same. It is there purely as an umpire to say that you can do, that you can't do. And so unbelievers, before we come into the kingdom of God, uh, everybody has a conscience. That conscience is there right from the start. Remember when God created Adam and Eve, we said that their conscience was there, it was there in latent form, their eyes of their conscience had just not yet been opened. Once they partook of the fruit, their eyes of their conscience were opened for the very first time. And so everybody who's born into the earth is born into the earth with a conscience. No one is born into the earth without a conscience. Everyone has a conscience. Um, Let's have a look at scripture along that line, 2 Corinthians 4, 2. Uh, the Apostle Paul writing, he says, But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And so there Paul talks about the fact that every single man has a conscience. And Paul uh, appealed to the, the conscience of every man. And, and we're going to expand on that truth uh, in this teaching today as well. Um, because it's important how believers behave around unbelievers with regards to their conscience. And we'll see the scriptures along that line. And so every human being on the planet has a conscience given to them by God for this express purpose of telling them this is right, that's wrong. Don't do that, do that. Um, now, not everybody obeys their conscience, obviously, and we, uh, we'll get into that in a bit of depth as well. But nevertheless, everybody does have a conscience. There's not one person on the planet who doesn't have a conscience. Um, and look at another scripture. Our Lord just kind of highlights the truth to us. In Matthew chapter 7, beginning at verse 9, our Lord speaking, Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. Now listen to this, verse 11. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? 
And so the Lord makes a, a quite a profound statement. He says, you know, if your children ask you for a fish or a bread, you're not going to give them a stone. You're not going to give them a serpent. You're going to give them what they ask for. And our Lord then says this statement. He says, if you then, it's talking about everybody who was talking. It wasn't a select few. He's talking about the people who would come to listen to him teach. He says, if you guys being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give good things to you who ask him? And so he's saying, he's telling everybody out there that they're evil. Now, why is that? Because they have the nature of the devil. Because in another passage of Scripture, our Lord says, you are of your father, the devil. And every single person who is not born again is of the devil. That's their father. They um, have taken on his nature. That's as simple as you can get it. Everybody who's an unbeliever on the planet uh, has Satan as their father and therefore has the nature of Satan. They are spiritually dead. And Jesus said, but even though you're evil, you know how to give good gifts to your children. In other words, then, you know, when, when, uh, uh, even a, a, a wicked uh, mafia father knows how to give good gifts to his children, okay? But he's evil. So how is that possible? How is it possible that somebody who's evil is able to give good gifts to certain individuals? Obviously, he doesn't give good gifts to everyone, but he knows how to give a good gift to his children. The reason being is because he has a conscience and his conscience convicts him to do what is good and what is right in that aspect and not give the serpent to the child, rather give the bread to the child. And that's the difference. Now, in other parts of his life, he's obviously, I'm talking about a, a hardened criminal now, um, you know, we go out there and we have no problem with, I don't know, stealing people's uh, goods. Uh, that's not an issue in his life because he's, he doesn't listen to his conscience there, he doesn't obey. But in his family life, there's a, his conscience does play a role, and he's able to give good gifts to his children. And so our Lord would just put in an update that, you know, all unbelievers are evil, and yet they have the ability to do good. Now, the only reason they have that ability is because their conscience is what is there to guide them to do the good. Otherwise, they wouldn't. Um, being evil, they wouldn't do it. But because they have a conscience, they do um, do that which is is good. And so let's just go back to this other scripture we, we looked at it in the previous teaching uh, briefly. But just let's re-look at it because it just again highlights the, the impact of the conscience in the life of the unbeliever. Because remember we're saying now that everybody on the planet has a conscience. And each one, um, and that conscience does the same thing in everybody. It doesn't do something different in a, in a Chinese person. They have a different conscience to somebody living in, the, in Europe. They, their conscience will let them do that. And they, in China, no, their conscience won't. No, no, the conscience of man is given to man to do one thing only. Well, two things kind of of the same coin. It says, that's wrong, that's right. That's good, that's evil. You can do good, you can't do evil. And good and evil are absolutes in, uh, in God's uh, creation. So it's not a case of, well, in one society this is good, but in that another society that's evil. Not at all. We're talking about in God's creation. God decides what is good, and God decides what is evil. And so the conscience of man given to him by God will only convict of what, is, what God says is evil, and will only agree to what God says is good. That's the bottom line. So let's get to that, that passage again. And John's Gospel, chapter 8. And as I said, this is the first time the, the conscience is ever mentioned in the Bible at this particular passage of Scripture. <clears throat> Beginning in verse 3, the, scribe said, and the passage says, Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it 
being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. And so, you know, this passage is just such a clear example to us of how the conscience of man works. Um, Jesus knew that everybody had a conscience. Jesus knew that these men had, had a conscience. And though even though they... they um, act was evil and the intention was evil and they really wanted to do you know, their, their conscience was not convicting them at this stage they had completely ignored their conscience up to now and they were wanting to, to you know, trap the Lord and they were really wanting to stone the woman but our Lord kind of brings them and I, I alluded to it in the previous teaching as well the Lord just quietens everybody down and he knows that if he can get them out of this hyper activity that they're in and he can get them to, to listen their conscience to start prodding them their conscience would, would kick in and they would eventually be convicted by their conscience and so he just quietens everything down and he starts writing on the ground and everybody now starts quietening down and what's this guy doing and then he gets up and he says okay the one among you who's without sin he can cast the first time that's, that's the law of God you can do that and then he goes down to start writing again. Why is he doing that? He's doing that because he's wanting their conscience to kick in. And that's exactly what happens. They, they, they kind of start to think introspectively. And they think, okay, you know, maybe this is not such a hot idea. And their conscience starts to convict them. And the moment that happens, now they realize, okay, I'm out of line. I can't do this. And they leave. And so that's a very vivid account and a very good example given to us in scripture of just how the conscience of the unbeliever works in the life of unbelievers so even in the lives of evil people that conscience is there and that conscience is is, is it, given the opportunity the conscience will convict them but a lot of people you know they override their conscience they, they you know they don't like it's why you get uh, and people love to listen to loud music and things like that because when they get quiet, then you know, their, their lives don't do kind of kind of convict them. So well, you know, your lifestyle is not not that hot. Um, so you know they're always trying to do stuff and get involved and be around people and be. They don't like to be on their own. Be that, be that as it may. So we we identify that everybody has a conscience, uh, believers and unbelievers alike. And we've seen that Christians should always obey their conscience. Um, believers, unbelievers do not always obey their conscience. Christians should always obey their conscience because we can't walk in love if we don't, if we don't have a good conscience. Um, but unbelievers don't. Um, and the Bible talks about people having a seared conscience. So what happens is that it, it, it kind of explains to us why some people can be more wicked than others because some people just, you know, override the conscience, override, override, to the point that the conscience becomes very weak and can't convict them anymore. Some, I'm talking about unbelievers now, some unbelievers live very good lives. The reason being, they always obey their conscience. And so if the conscience doesn't allow it, they don't do it. And so they have a strong conscience, and so they can live good lives. But Paul recognizes, and the Holy Spirit obviously through the Apostle Paul recognizes, that as Christians, as believers, we can impact on the conscience of unbelievers and so as Christians we have a, a double role to play we're, we're meant to maintain a good conscience ourselves remember we, we saw Paul says I always uh, let's go back and just read his that passage of scripture where he talks about the conscience of all men um, he says in, in uh, 2 Corinthians 4 2 he says but we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness or nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And so Paul recognized that as believers, it was very important for him to commend himself to every man's conscience because he understood that it was possible for Christians, and I'm talking about purely Christians now, it's possible for Christians to impact negatively on the conscience of unbelievers. Now that sounds like a strange statement, but in fact it's true. That's how the Bible actually teaches us on this issue. Um, 
Why is, why is that? Well, the, we'll get to the scripture now, but the, we are the benchmark given to the, given to the earth. Remember that our Lord said, when the Holy Spirit comes, He will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Of sin because they don't, don't believe in Him, of righteousness because He's ascended to the Father, of judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. But nevertheless, the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin. Now, He convicts the world of their sin. Now, I understand He also convicts the world of not accepting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, but He also convicts the world of their sin. Now, how does he do that? He does that because the Christian in whom the Holy Spirit dwells is the one who convicts the unbeliever, unbeliever of sin. Now, how does he do that? Well, let's give an example. If the believer is walking in sin and the unbeliever sees that believer walking in sin, it is impossible for the Holy Spirit who dwells within that believer to convict the unbeliever of sin in that area. Let's say it's adultery, for argument's sake. So the, the Christians committing adultery, the unbelievers committing adultery, the Holy Spirit cannot convict the unbeliever of the sin of adultery because the unbeliever is looking at a, a believe, the benchmark committing adultery as well. And so we, the, 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 the sin that the, the believers committing is hindering the uh, Holy Spirit of convicting the unbeliever of those sins, or whatever sin it might be. However, if on the other hand, the believer is walking in righteousness, and the unbeliever is walking in sin, now the Holy Spirit on the inside of that believer can convict the unbeliever of sin. Why is that? Because he can see the benchmark. He can see, well, this is how the Christian lives, this is how I'm living, and the conviction kicks in. The Holy Spirit is able to convict the unbeliever of sin. That's how they, we can either be um, a fellow laborer together with the Holy Spirit in this issue, or we can be a hindrance to Him. And so, so from that aspect, it's very important for Christians to walk a righteous lifestyle um, wherever they go, because God uses us as the benchmark. And believe you me, the moment that unbelievers know that you're a Christian, they look at you. Because they then say, okay, well, now this is how I live, this is, and this person says they're a Christian. So let me now see if I'm doing all right or not. They, don't, they do it unconsciously, but it gets done, nevertheless. And that's when the Holy Spirit can work if the Christian is walking a righteous lifestyle. Because then he can convict the, Christ, the unbeliever, okay, I'm actually, you know, I'm, not meet, I'm not meeting the benchmark, I'm not meeting the requirements. Because look at their lifestyle like and look at one and they get convicted of their sin but as i say if the christians are walking a sinless life and walking in sin themselves well then the holy spirit can't work through it but in the same manner so just as we can prevent the holy spirit from convicting unbelievers of sin so we can negatively or positively affect their conscience so it's a very important concept we need to get to understand christians can affect consciences of unbelievers. So let's have a look at it. And obviously we can affect the conscience of believers as well, but we're dealing specifically with unbelievers now. The scripture is in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 27. The scripture says, If any of those who do not believe, so he's talking about unbelievers now, invite you to dinner. So he's talking about a Christian being invited to dinner by an unbeliever. Okay, he says, And you desire to go. Eat whatever is set before you, asking no question for what purpose? For conscience sake, he says. Now look what he says here, verse 28. But if anyone says to you, so now this is the person you've gone to eat with them, have dinner with them, um, and he says, whenever, whatever they put before you, don't ask any question for conscience sake. Eat whatever they put before you. Don't say, you know, is this kosher or not kosher? No, whatever they put before you, you eat for conscience sake. Verse 28, he says, But if anyone says to you, This was offered to idols, do not eat it, but eat it for the sake of the one who told you and for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all this fullness. Verse 29, Conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other. He's talking about the unbeliever's conscience. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? So let's unpack this now. What is he saying? He's saying, 
Whenever you go to, you get invited to dinner by an unbeliever, you desire to go, you can go. There's nothing wrong with that. We can go to dinner with unbelievers. He says, whatever gets put before you, eat it. Don't start asking questions, how is this prepared, what, 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 and just eat for conscience sakes, because you don't want to have to now start analyzing the stuff. Just eat it. But, he says, this is where you have to now draw the line. If the guy who gives you the food says, I've offered this to my God uh, as a sacrifice, so go ahead and eat. He, Paul says, then you can't. Now you have to refrain from eating. And why does he say that? He says, for conscience sake, in verse 28, conscience, I say, not of your own, but that of the other. So it's because of his conscience. Okay, so we really need to understand what Paul is trying to teach us here because it's a very important principle. He's saying, yeah, it's not an issue in my, in, he says, because why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? So Paul is saying, and if you really understand Paul's writing and what he teaches, he said, yeah, you guys can eat anything. There's nothing we can't eat. Everything's clean. Um, we're sanctified by the word of God and prayer, and so it's fine. And God, it's a creation of God. That's not an issue. He says, but if I partake of that food now, so let's, put, let's say Paul was at the, at the dinner, and the guy brought this food to him and said, I've offered this uh, food uh, as a sacrifice to my God, tuck in Paul, and Paul would have to say, sorry, I can't. And so the question is raised, why, Paul? Why can't you eat of it? He says, because I will affect the conscience of that unbeliever. So now how would Paul affect the conscience of the unbeliever? Well, to eat food that is offered to idols is to eat food that is offered to demons. And you can look at the, in the uh, Corinthians, Paul teaches us that when, when food is offered to idols, that's a no-no. Christians should not be there partaking of that. And so he's saying... It's wrong to because it's, it's, that food is offered to demons, and and Paul said you can't partake of the, the Lord's table and the table of demons. It's that's just not on, and so we we don't partake of it in that instance because what has happened is that the guy who's who's off giving you the food, he's offered that food up to a demon. He doesn't know it. He, he talks about his God, but we understand as believers that that God that he's serving is in fact a demon. And so he's offered that food to a demon. Now his conscience is very weak. His conscience, remember, the conscience of man is given to man by God to discern between good and evil. What God says is good and what God says is evil. Now God says it's evil to offer food to demons and then partake of that food. He said, God says that's not on. You don't do that. But this guy's been doing it all his life because he's grown up like that. That's the religion he's come out of. So he does it. And he invites this Christian now to his, his dinner table and he says, you know, this is what I presented to my God. And the, the Christian knows he's presented to a demon. Eat. And so the Christian says, sorry, I can't do that. So the Christian is now saying to the, the unbeliever, that is wrong. You can't do that. You, I can't partake of food that you've offered to a demon um, and have a good conscience before my God. I can't do that. My conscience will not allow me to do that. So now what has happened is for the very first time, the unbeliever is seeing a benchmark he's never seen before. Because this is different. He's always eaten this food that he's sacrificed to his God. And everybody in the family, that, you know, we, and in their, their families, because this is the culture he's brought up in. But now he's been presented with a different benchmark, a, a Christian benchmark that says, that's actually wrong. Now what happens? All of a sudden, he's convicted. Two things are convicting him. Don't forget, the Holy Spirit is convicting him of that sin. But his conscience is also able to come to, to, the, to the fore. And he actually feels uncomfortable on the inside of him for the very first time. This is, you know, what... I've always thought this was right, what I was doing, but maybe it's not right, because that Christian is saying to me it's not right. And so that's why he won't eat of this. Uh, I might get offended, you know, but nevertheless, the conscience kicks in. His conscience is able to start working on him for the very, most probably the very first time, uh, that he's starting to feel uncomfortable for something he's always done his whole life, because the, the benchmark has now been revealed to him. And that is why. Now, had the Christian partaken of that food, boom, 
the Holy Spirit couldn't convict him of that sin anymore because he's doing the same thing. So the Holy Spirit can't say, well, this is wrong because my, my child is doing exactly the same thing. And at the same time, we have, we've, we've wounded his weak conscience. He's really got a weak conscience because he, his conscience is maybe we tried to scream at him for years. This is actually not a good thing you should be doing. Um, but he, he just keeps suppressing it. And so his conscience is that weak. But now if he sees the Christian agreeing with him that you know, we can go ahead and do this, well, his conscience has no chance. And we actually, the Christian then negatively affects the unbeliever's conscience, weakens his conscience even more because his conscience can't you know, scream against that because he's seeing the benchmark right in front of him. And the benchmark is saying, yeah, this is fine. You can eat whatever you want offered to, to demons. We understand as demons, he doesn't. But we need to, and you never go to the guy and say, no, I mean, what you've just done, you've offered to demons, so that's why I can't. I mean, you don't want to offend the person. You just say, as a Christian, I cannot. Um, I cannot offer, uh, eat anything that has not been offered, uh, that has been offered to an, another God, because I only serve the one God, who is um, Jesus Christ, my Lord. And that's what the Holy Spirit can work with, and that's what the unbeliever's conscience can then work with. But as I say, if the Christian chooses um, to go ahead and do it, then, as Paul says, we will then affect, he says, conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other, and the other being the unbeliever. And so, definitely, Christians can impact positively or negatively on unbelievers' consciences, and we really want to have a good track record in that when we stand before the Lord, we don't, he doesn't turn around and say to us, you know, look what you did there. Um, I was trying to get that guy right, and you damaged his conscience because you went and agreed with what he was doing. Um, and so that's not what we want to do at all. We want to be the, the benchmark that our Lord uses. And so um, believers have a conscience. The scripture says, um, Acts 24, 16, this being so, I myself always try to have a conscience without offense toward God and men, men plural. So Paul's talking about believers and unbelievers alike. And so we as Christians should always strive to have a good conscience. Paul always strove to have a good conscience. Peter did the same thing. 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16, he says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evil doers, talking about unbelievers now, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. And so only if you have a good conscience that they will be ashamed. If you don't have a good conscience, they're not going to be ashamed because you're not going to be the benchmark anymore. And so it's very important for Christians to have a good conscience, um, not only for their own lives, but also for the lives of others. Because we recognize what we do impacts on the conscience of those around us. It's very important for us to understand that concept. Because this, this, our lives are being judged all the time by people who are around us, if they know you're a Christian. Because God can then use you as the benchmark. And uh, He can work with that if you're going to walk a righteous lifestyle. But now we come to, I want to just touch on um, how the conscience kicks in. Because there is a difference between um, conscience of mature individuals and conscience of uh, children. It's, it's a different scenario completely. And so let's just have a look at uh, some spiritual truths around this, and I'll just speak on it, and then we'll, we'll close off on today's teaching. And the scripture I want to go to have a look at is in Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. Scripture says, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Verse 14, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who wants to come. And so Paul is just bringing out the fact that sin needs law. Remember I said to you, the, 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 the simplest uh, definition of sin is disobedience to God. So if I'm going to commit sin, I have to disobey God. That's the only way I can commit sin. Um, now, the only law that was given to man between, from the time of Adam until 
the law was introduced into the earth when Moses came on the scene. The only law that had been given to men by God was, you are not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was the only command given by God. God gave no other command between those times. Adam transgressed. Adam disobeyed. Adam committed sin. God then removed Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. So it was impossible for men after that time to commit that sin against God. Um, he, and Paul says that. He says, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. Because it was impossible for anybody to get to that tree again and partake of that fruit. No one could get there. And so no one could commit that transgression that Adam committed. It was impossible to do that. And yet Paul is saying here, he says, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. So Paul's trying to explain it. Because he, he said at the, at the outset, he says, for until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned. And if you read the book of Romans, death can only come through sin. Remember, God said, in the day that you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. And so death, spiritual death, can only enter through sin. Sin has to precede spiritual death. It's impossible for spiritual death to materialize unless sin has first taken place. So, Paul is saying, now we've got a bit of a problem here, because there was no law in the earth from Adam to Moses that mankind could transgress, because the only law given to them was do not eat of that fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Nobody could do that anymore because nobody could get there. And so there's no law that we know about between Adam and Moses. And Paul says, but yet people are dying. From Adam through to Moses, everybody dies. And we know that death can't come unless there's sin. So there has to be sin. So what is the sin that was being committed from the time of Adam through to the time of Moses? that was causing people to die because they didn't have the law of Moses yet and yet they were dying so there had to be a law that they were transgressing well the law that they were transgressing was now the law of their conscience because their conscience was given to each one everyone was given to them to know good and evil to choose good and reject evil that was the law given to them their conscience, the law of their conscience was given to them. Everybody had one. And so the moment that anybody transgressed against their conscience, they chose evil over good, they transgressed God's law. And the moment they transgressed God's law, they committed sin. And the moment they committed sin, they died spiritually, instantly. Again, no grace. There was no grace under the old covenant. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, uh, um, Paul, um, John, the apostle, uh, teaches us in his epistles um, and also in the Gospel of John. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ our Lord. So there was no grace. The moment that anybody committed sin under the, until grace materialized in Jesus, the moment that sin was committed, same, there was exactly the same result that occurred with Adam and Eve. There was no grace with them. The moment they sinned, they died spiritually. And exactly the same thing transpires um, up until the time of Jesus. Everybody, from um, Adam through to Moses, and even after the law of Moses. Because think about all the Gentile nations. They, they weren't exposed to the law, and yet they were still experiencing death. And we're talking about spiritual death now. Because the moment that you sin, the spirit of man dies. Instantly, that happens. Now, with regards to children, it's different. When I say it's different, it's, it's, bear with me. Just, everybody is born into the earth, uh, is born spiritually alive to God. God is the father of spirits. And so when a, when a spirit comes into the earth, it comes from God. And it enters into the physical body, and the body comes to life for the very first time. When the two cells are joined, that's when the spirit comes in and the cells divide and life is given. Because the body without the spirit is dead. So the spirit has to be present for the cells to begin to divide. And God then forms the outward man as he has already formed the inward man. And he covers the outward man, uh, the inward man with the outward man in the womb. We saw that in the Psalms. But the spirit is alive unto God. But 
from the time that the child is born uh, or conceived until the age of 13, their conscience, the eyes of their conscience is, no, is not open. The conscience is there in latent form. So it's in the same category as what Adam and Eve were when they were in the Garden of Eden. The conscience was there in latent form, but the eyes of the conscience hadn't yet been opened. At the age of 13, the eyes of their conscience is open for the very first time. And when that happens, the moment they commit any sin, doesn't matter what sin it is, the spirits die instantly. And they are then spiritually dead. And so that is what Paul was saying. He says, from the time of Adam all the way through to Moses, people were dying, but there was no law. Because the law that they were transgressing was the law of their conscience. And the conscience, uh, the eyes of the conscience on, in man is opened only at the age of 13. You say, where do you get that from? In Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 39, God said it. So let's see what God has to say. This is God speaking. He says, Moreover, your little ones and your children, who you say will be victims, who today have no knowledge of good and evil, they shall go in there. To them I will give it, and they shall possess it. And so here's God's viewpoint of children and little ones. He says they have no knowledge of good and evil. Now remember that the conscience is there to give us knowledge of good and evil. Our conscience is given to us to say, that's good, that's evil, do that, don't do that. Children don't have that. God says they have no knowledge of good and evil. Now, while they're growing up, they're being programmed, their minds are being taught, this is right, that's wrong, that's fine. But the conscience is not yet kicked in. At the age of 13, the conscience, the eyes of their conscience is open for the very first time. And then the very first sin they commit kills their spirits, and they die spiritually, and thus they need to be born again. And so that's how the conscience... So children do not have a conscience. They have one, sorry. They have a conscience, but the eyes of their conscience are not yet open. God says they have no knowledge of good and evil. And so that's where they, they, they fit into the whole thing. And another scripture we can look at is Romans chapter 7, verse 9. The Apostle Paul talking about when he was a child. He says, I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Talking about his spiritual death. So he's saying when he was a child, he was alive spiritually. Commandment came, sin revived, I died. And so he died spiritually, and he thus needed to be born again. And so everybody has a conscience. Children have a conscience, but the, the, conscience, the eyes of their conscience only open at the age of 13. And that's why wherever you are in the world, it matters not whether you've ever heard the, the, uh, the gospel or whether you've heard... And I, I'm talking about people who've never heard the Bible. They all die at the age, uh, spiritually at the age of 13. Death reigns because they transgress that one law that God's given them, the law of their conscience, which is given to everyone to say, this is right, that's wrong, don't do that, do that. And that is the role of the conscience in the lives of unbelievers and children and how believers can negatively or positively uh, affect the consciences of unbelievers and obviously believers as well but we won't touch on that today but we're going to end the teaching on that particular point today